0: People feel like they have, I think, less time, but I think there's competing interests for what they put into their day and into their time. What worries me is that people are maybe more than ever very satisfied with kind of the junk food of life. So reality TV, you know, it's hours on social media. There's no incentives or not as many. And you have a lot of shortcuts and you don't need to do big thought into many, many different types of, uh, things or areas in life. You know, again, so I say this, this is like the junk food piece of it. I'm going to get full, but not anything with nutrients.
1: You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today I get to welcome to the show Xavier Bonilla, he is a licensed clinical professional counselor in Maryland, he has a doctorate in psychology, and he's also the host of Converging Dialogues podcast, where he, similar to me, does long-form interviews with guests on a range of topics that he's interested in. I'm excited to see where our conversation today goes. Welcome, Xavier.
0: Oh, thanks for for having me. I, I'm also looking forward to it. So it's always nice to to talk with fellow podcasters and fellow clinicians. And so it's a nice merging, so a nice converging there of, of sorts of worlds. So it's nice.
1: Mm-hmm. Before we start recording, we were brainstorming thoughts on just topics we've been mutually interested in lately, and you were talking about human dynamics in relationships, public and private and how we incentivize behavior, how we incentivize bringing out the best or the worst in people um, and bringing out human potential. I think this is really interesting and in that as people who work in the field of psychology, we have a unique lens into this because we study human behavior and we see how patterns play out in relationships over time. And you also have these interdisciplinary interests, right? You interview scientists and researchers on your podcast. So you have these opportunities to balance out the more kind of emotional, intuitive, symbolic type of thought that it requires to be a counselor with the rational, logical, scientific mindedness of your other interests. And I think that's a good combination for exploring the idea of social incentives but before we go any further can you share what do social incentives mean to you
0: yeah so i think it probably depends on what it is you know in in terms of environment or context so if you're thinking of a social incentive you know at a workplace right? Well, there's certain things that you're going to do based on or not do based on the group you're with, you know, with your family, it's going to look a little bit different. But I think where this comes out a lot is for folks that are online, uh, particularly. And I think we saw this over the course, I mean, this before the pandemic, I mean, this wasn't, I don't think a feature of the pandemic, although I think it was exacerbated, where now we have, you know, social media is going very fast and media in general and, and the digital age, it's very fast. It's very, very, very fast. Almost enough where people can't catch up to it. I, I think we make advances and then it's on to the next advance and the next thing. And, and, and sometimes I think, you know, life wasn't that fast before. And so we're 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 trying to catch up with everything. But with social incentives, I guess if I give an example, so many times if we are if someone is putting information out or putting content out, let's say and it's something that is on one of these extremes, right? Whether it's politically or in society or any any type of extreme, that's usually going to be incentivized more. It gets more clicks, gets more likes, gets more views, gets more everything, right? On either end of whatever spectrum you want to think about. So we see this with race. We see this with gender. We see this with, we have seen this with vaccines. We've seen this with distrust or, or or some type of questions around institutions and so all of these things keep getting pushed up to the highest level of people needing to cater to a particular group or following that starts to do that and so what happens is people i think what my observation is is that people are continuing to feed the beast of sorts of okay this keeps getting me you know money from my patreon or wherever It's getting me more likes and clicks and and shares and retweets and all this, and people get money. And it almost doesn't matter if the information is relevant or not. If you're doing something that is, you know, getting at the most sensational piece of, of a person, there leaves little room for things in the middle, the things that are more nuanced. Most things in life are multivariate. They have all these different dimensions. And people are focused on the one narrow one that is usually the most extreme. And I think that's what we see is incentivized on a whole wide range of topics and on both uh, extremities, on, on both sides, politically or otherwise.
1: I think it'll be interesting to delve into specifically what you've brought up of how we reward and incentivize online behavior because we do spend so much of our time online. I like mm-hmm. to zoom out and share another aspect of social incentives. Just to think about any anything for which we get socially rewarded, praise, approval, attention, even negative attention. We can learn to feed off of that too. Engagement, comfort, or I hate this term, but for lack of a better word, excuses. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, social dynamics that kind of let us off the hook for something that we're not wanting to confront, that's challenging, right? So these on a broader scale can be relatively healthy or unhealthy, right? If if you're getting positive attention for working hard to achieve your goals or doing something kind, helpful, creative, productive, inventive, if you're getting positive feedback for those things, then it's creating a healthy feedback loop that can allow you to live a meaningful life, right? But we can also be incentivized to be unwell if we're getting compassion or favors or support for that. We can be incentivized to be bullies if it feels like it enhances our reputation or clout. So there's all kinds of ways we can influence one another positively or negatively, depending on how we respond to each other's behavior. And then I think how that plays out online, which you brought up is such an important topic right now. And you brought up how, let me put it slightly differently, how algorithms favor things that are emotionally triggering. Because the whole point of social media, even YouTube, which this interview is going to be on YouTube, is to keep the user engaged as long as possible, as much as possible. and part of how you keep someone engaged is by emotionally hooking them right so things that are placid that don't capture our attention don't rile us up we tend to only seek those out if we're deliberately engaging in some kind of mindfulness or self-care practice if we make a choice you know what i think i'm going to try to create a relaxing atmosphere for myself tonight and do some yoga i'm going to put on a meditation or something that's going to help me kind of downregulate my nervous system. Some of us are in the habit of doing that deliberately to our benefit and frankly to the benefit of those around us because it makes us more pleasant people to be around. But in the absence of that intention, we gravitate towards things that are emotionally stimulating. and, And sometimes that's getting hooked on anger or outrage, feelings of righteous indignation, feelings of helplessness and hopelessness associated with sadness and tragedy. Or some people are hooked on things that are more stimulating of aggression, excitement, adrenaline, or maybe they're hooked on positive emotions in the form of things that are lighter and more playful, which you you could say, you could make an argument that that's a, a bit of a healthier coping mechanism. But I think algorithms are designed in one way or another to favor the things that are most likely to be emotionally triggering, right? And so then this means that the news is very polarizing because things are going to be framed in a way that gets gets you where you're looking for the bad guy, something to be outraged about or terrified about or heartbroken about. I recently made a post where the text said, it was an Instagram post, don't let an algorithm control your mind. And I think that's what we're doing and it can have real outcomes. I mean, let's let's talk for a moment about the outcomes of this dynamic. A, a few main ones that I see. One is that it can feed into depression and anxiety. And I have concerns about that for people who maybe can't actually afford to let anything get them down. You know, people who for the sake of their own well-being, their ability to function, and their health and the people around them should really be focused on what's gonna help me live the best life I can right now. Right now, now there is room, I think, that we should all have in our lives ideally to deal with really hard stuff and to feel challenging emotions around that. But I also think that we each have an individual responsibility to know what our limits are, and how much and in what context we can engage in things that have the potential to stir us up or bring us down. So I think there are, there are some mental health outcomes, and then when these things do affect our outlook, what are some of the ways? What are some of the ripple effects of the way that our outlook outlook gets affected? So one of those ripple effects that I'm thinking about would be paranoia, fear, and mistrust, and divisiveness. And then how do those affect our relationships, behaviors, social dynamics over time? So I think that this is a really big deal and that each of us has to exercise a degree of caution mindfully, deliberately, to not let these algorithms run away with us. Because the algorithms are based in our most advanced technology which is a combination of all the best and brightest human brains all together like that's hard to beat it's powerful
0: i would say uh, two things that you're pulling out here so you're you're mentioning the algorithms and then you're it sounds like you're mentioning somewhat of the you know where does the responsibility lie right or how do how do people have some type of ability to exercise appropriate inhibition <laughs> so i agree with you on your your first point about the algorithm it's obviously well understood that it has impact so based on you know you click on you know x amount of videos then you're getting suggestions to watch like uh, videos and you know on so on and so forth so this definitely happens on youtube you know it's it's basically curating. You know, out of billions of videos, these are the ones that we're probably more more interested in. And that in and of itself isn't, I think, negative. I mean, it certainly can be, obviously, but I don't think it is. I think it's a way of trying to understand the user. You know, the, the idea behind this, though, is that it's a machine that's doing it, not another person behind it, necessarily, which makes people, I guess, a little bit, if they sit and think about it, somewhat, you know, queasy about it. But everyone uses it every day, myself included, and we don't think about it. I guess about the responsibility piece, yeah, I think what you were saying at the end there, I, I definitely agree with. I mean, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, I guess Instagram, I know there's heavy algorithms there too. At the end of the day, it's the person's you know, perceived uh, choice to engage with some of that. And that's what I find particularly curious about is many people, including many you know, well-known figures seem to to lack control or inhibition to respond to something which i don't really understand i mean i can't tell you i mean it happens every week i can't tell you how many times people will be on twitter and there will be a a video that's getting shared whatever it is right you can pick any month you can pick any time of year you can pick whatever's going on in the world and there's that one video that's getting shared over and over and over. I start you start seeing all the accounts, right? And then everyone reshares and everyone retweets it and then everyone has a hot take on it. And I always wonder why do, you know, well-informed or or people that are in the public eye that have, you know, millions of followers or whatever choose to engage in kind of this like, you know, perpetual groupthink. I don't really understand it. Uh, it. It really doesn't make sense to me because I can see that, and I know other people, you know, that I follow will see the same things and don't need to have a public response. Don't need to, you know, sit there and also jump in on, you know, the shit posting and everything. Right? I, I don't understand why people choose to do that. And again, that's where it goes to: is there some type of signaling that's going on for, you know, my group? or for my status or for my rank or for my whatever. It's, it just seems really cheap and unnecessary. And those types of things happen, you know, IRL as well, but it's different and has, I don't think people really quite understand. I don't understand, you know, I have like, you know, what 4,000 followers, something like that. I'm pretty low, low on the totem pole here, but I don't know what it's like to reach 4,000 people at once. That's strange. That's strange. Like I, I don't ever, I've never spoken in front of 4,000 people. So imagine someone that has like, you know, 3 million followers, no one speaks in front of 3 million people. So you're, you're letting your thoughts be broadcast to 3 million people at the same time. That's such a strange way of thinking about it, but that's essentially what's happening. And you're getting 30 seconds of a clip or a video and then your instant reaction and then broadcast to 3 million people volitionally. It's very strange. And I don't have a lot of firm conclusions about why that is, aside from the things we talked about. There's definitely a fear component. There's an algorithmic component. There's a group think component. There's a status and rank component. Those are true. But those things, whether you know those things or not, don't really tell or prescribe for people why it's hard for some than others to not engage with those hot takes or for those types of things. And you know, I don't have an answer for that, but it is something that does happen. And it's very curious about why that is. So I, I, don't, I don't have a clear answer on it, but it's interesting.
1: You framed it as broadcasting one's own thoughts. But I, I question whether these are people's original thoughts. You know, when it comes to celebrities, on the one hand, I hear you saying, why would a celebrity need to do that? But maybe celebrities, politicians, you know, anyone who has and seeks massive following, maybe part of how they do that is by keeping their finger on the pulse of what the public consensus seems to be. Mm-hmm. And of course, that consensus is going to be skewed by the loudest people on yeah. the internet, the most active voices, and the things that rile people up, mm-hmm. whatever the trends might be. Mm-hmm. And so this group think it's almost like this amoeba that just kind of absorbs whatever it touches and grows and grows. and it's not necessarily correct. I was having a conversation yesterday with my significant other about being a politician with one's finger on the pulse and and that the job of a politician is to reflect the position of their constituents. It would be nice if that was accurate, but of course it is gonna be influenced by those who are the most vocal. But it's also, that's the difference between a politician and someone we really trust, right? Because mm-hmm. politicians, notoriously are low in trust, at least in this country, in this day and age. And the people we really trust are the ones who, ironically and sadly, people actually said this about Trump, this is not at all how I feel about Trump, but the ones who say the unpopular thing that you know intuitively in your heart is right. The people who you feel like aren't trying to appeal to the greatest number of people but who you can sense have some deeper mission to speak what they believe is true and their own original thoughts. Those are the people we trust, admire, respect. Those are the people who we have archetypal victory stories about that we like to learn from, but we also vilify them. And we rarely follow in their footsteps when it comes to being brave enough to have original thought. And voice unpopular opinions. So then we have, like you say, these echo chambers that just keep reflecting group consensus, quasi consensus, without actually necessarily guiding us any closer to truth or to what's going to help us progress. I also think the reactivity obscures the fact that. It's really being proactive that helps us progress. But in order to be proactive, you have to recognize your own agency as a creator, that what you speak speaks something into existence, that what you speak is a powerful message in and of itself. And when I see people speaking from a place of hopelessness or nihilism, there's often a sense that I get that they're overlooking their own personal agency. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that Mm -hmm. way?
0: Well, me personally, or, or just in general, Mm -hmm. that, that you, that, that that's happening for me personally, I don't necessarily feel that way, but I do agree with your sentiment that people do speak from, from, I think a lot of those places, you know, it's one of those things where like people have lots of fears about things and, you know, that's not the only answer, but I think that's one of them. And people are trying to understand where things are, but they, if you feel like something is going to harm you uh, financially, socially, you know, politically, you're going to try your best to find ways to not get hurt in some ways so this works in terms of interpersonal and interpersonal manners yeah I guess what you were kind of saying about the you know political piece about where people represent us and things like that I mean it's interesting how people will be very legitimately confused about like you know people will say well why why would why would folks continue to vote for uh, Mitch McConnell or you know chuck grassley or you know susan collins and you know are they doing anything for for their constituents and while there's many different reasons for that that's what people know and it's like uh here on on where, where i'm at in, in maryland and I mean we've i think uh, people out in district uh five i think it is i don't remember southern maryland have voted for steny hoyer, hoyer you know for 45 years or something like that you just every two years you just every you know just Sorry because to say, I don't know who that is. He's the second or third in command for the House. So I forget the word. He's like right up there after. It's like the Speaker of the House. And then I think uh, it's a major- majority whip. And then I think it's him or something like that. He's like right there in terms of the the hierarchy. Anyways, my point is, is that whomever you take on either side, left or right, people vote for who they know or they are interested in who they know, right? And I think that happens in a lot of ways where... If if someone feels like they know someone or they've said enough things, you know, like it's obviously, I think social psych tells us this that people will trust people that, you know, kind of will occasionally go against their own interest, right? To show, like, oh, look, see how I've been able to make some kind of change or I, I can have change of mind or things like that. And people don't like the double speak. And again, I think this happens personally. I think that's that happens where people look to certain, you know, intellectual public figures. Politicians, they want to see some version of of authenticity because it makes people feel, I think, in some way safer. It's it's more predictable in its own way. And I think that's what people, on on average, are are getting at. They want to say, hey, you know, these are the things that are difficult for me, whether it's economically, whether it's socially, whether it's uh, personally. And if it's a political figure, I don't have to trust you 100%. I just got to make sure I know that you're trying to look out for my best interest and in people in my community where we have similar interest. If it's people in terms of public figures. You're trying to say, "Hey, you know, make sure you don't just drink the Kool-Aid and maybe play devil's advocate here. Maybe you have a outsider opinion to make sure we don't get lost in that." And I think it s- swings the other way where then people kind of get lost in that you know, this person says something and it's always 100% right. I'm never not going to think otherwise. But I think a lot of this is coming from people's fears and insecurities and and trying to make sure, okay, you know, how do I, I don't have enough time in the day to to think about all these things. So I should trust the people that do, and that's their job. And so I, you know, I can be less worried about it. But again, I'm, I'm saying more in the abstract that obviously this is not individuals. Obviously this isn't every single person, but I think in some ways this is If you boil it all down and you were to to kind of ask people, so why, why do you, why do you have that opinion? Or why did you make that kind of response? Or I think if people were honest, they would say some version of that. It's like, yeah, I got to make sure that this person makes sure that, you know, the economy is good so I can put food on the table. That's a place of, if I don't, I cannot have, you know, basic needs to support myself and my family. That's a place of legitimate fear and concern, which is, which is fair. So, you know, I think that there's some things that are legitimate there. Uh, And then other things start to kind of get uh, muddied and it's more of, you know, signals that we're sending, whether they're accurate or not is is another question.
1: You said that some people sometimes think or say, I don't have enough time in the day to think about that. And I almost want to just take that out of context and say, sometimes we don't feel like we have enough time to think. You know, earlier I called into question, are we broadcasting our own thoughts? Are we really giving this thought? Earlier you had mentioned, and I don't remember the exact context, but mental shortcuts that we take or, you know, heuristics. And you attributed this in part to a fast pace of life. Now we all need mental shortcuts, ways of simplifying incoming information because life is too complex otherwise, but a fast pace of living, and a reactive atmosphere and groupthink will all make it more intense, the reliance that we have on those mental shortcuts and the absence of deep thought. Do you ever feel concerned that we're losing touch with how to think?
0: Yes and no. I think that, so just to kind of follow with what you're saying there, right? All heuristics are shortcuts and they all have downsides it's their apps we use them all the time and they're useful and they're helpful because they try and help us we don't have the time to literally go through like each kind of stage each time we like, okay i've done this enough times okay here it is but they always have shortcomings that's a hard question about are people having reduction of thought i guess i don't have a position i'm kind of married to on that mm. because you know, if we're talking in again in the aggregate of you know neurotypical types of folks that have the capacity to to have uh, have established uh, thoughts uh, at developmentally appropriate for their age and et cetera. I think that everyone has those, most people have the capacity to think and do think, obviously. I think there are competing, people feel like they have, I think, less time, but I think there's competing interests for what they put into their day and into their time. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, what what worries me is that people... Many people, not all people, but many people are maybe more than ever very satisfied with kind of the junk food of life. So, reality TV, you know, it's hours on social media, ways where they're not, there's no incentives or not as many. And it, it, you have a lot of shortcuts and you don't need to do, it's not required to do big thought into many, many different types of things or areas in life. If you were to ask people, you know, when was the last time they, they read a bill that was being proposed in the House or the Senate. If people are honest, they probably will say, "I've never done that," mm-hmm. or "I can't remember the last time mm-hmm. I did that." Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, so where are you getting information? Mm-hmm. You know, did you read a Vox explains article? Did you read, you know, watch a Fox News segment? Did mm-hmm. you see it on Facebook or Twitter? I mean, you're getting something, but you're definitely getting something that's biased, which is fine. We, we all have biases. That the, a bias doesn't equal a negative but you're not getting the whole picture and so yeah. it's like okay well how much thought are you putting into this yeah right again i don't have a good answer it's a good question mm-hmm. i don't have a good answer i guess what worries me is that people i, I worry about that people are too their lives are too crowded mm-hmm. and yeah. you don't need to sit and read a four or five hundred page book about non-fiction or fiction even you just Listen to a podcast. I mean, again, there's nothing wrong with podcasts. I, I mean, we both have one. There's nothing wrong with it. But <laughs> or I watch the YouTube video that explains it, or you know, again, so I say this: is it's like the junk food piece of it. I'm going to get full, but not anything with nutrients, yeah. and that's you can just kind of, kind of just pass and glide through. I mean, I I talk to people on my podcast that write books often, and and I'm shocked when they're like, the expectation is people won't read the whole book. Why are you writing four hundred pages? Mm -hmm. There's different reasons, but the expectation is people won't, won't do that. And Mm -hmm. that's terrible. That's a terrible thing. I mean, you know, that's, Mm -hmm. I've said it many times. I am not one of these older people that, you know, says, oh, how social media is terrible. And that's why we have all our problems. Mm -hmm. I don't think that I think there's many, 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 many good uses for it, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. I think it's, I do worry. I do worry about how much people on important things on things that they should are putting deep enough thought into things. and um, mm-hmm. But I, I don't know, I don't know all of the, the data on it.
1: Yeah. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd wanna do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the pod pro cover by 8sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to eightsleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, Eight Sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Uh, well, I I loved your answer because it modeled deep thought. I mean, right. I might <laughs> have some long pauses edited out cuz that's just how I have things edited. So I don't know what our <laughs> listeners are going to hear. But you really mold that one over. Right? You didn't you didn't react like, "Well, yeah, of course I think so." Or, "No, I, of course not." You know, you were like, "Hmm, let me think about that. I'm not sure." Well, if I we think about it from this angle, you know, it's like you modeled the type of thought that I'm expressing concern that we're losing. So I, I kind of love how that played out. And, you know, a few points of connection. One that I hear you saying that I, I very much agree with is that deep thought requires spaciousness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and you talk about people's lives being too cluttered or chaotic or busy. And I agree. I think when I mean, you talk about that junk food too, it's like TikTok is like. Doritos of the brain, right? And it's really easy to get hooked on that fast flavor, right? And the dopamine that comes with it. And I don't think we always realize when we're consuming that junk food content how much brain space it's taking up. And we don't think about what else could be in that space because what else could be in that space is not necessarily something as tangible as a stimulating video or an outraging tweet or a picture on Instagram that stirs up your desires, right? What could be in that space is far more subtle. So you don't realize what you're missing out on. Mm-hmm. I think in a similar way to how, when we live in the city and we have light pollution, we don't often think about the fact that we're missing out on the stars. So deep thought requires spaciousness. You also brought up a good point of asking people when was last time you read a bill? And I kind of chuckled because I just had that conversation with my mother the other day. Oh,
0: did you? <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah.
1: my mother's 81. She's a lifelong Democrat. You know, it's funny because when I was younger, I was so radical. I was so far to the left that, you know, my mom was centrist by comparison. And now um, I just don't, Think that she's been able to keep up. I mean, she's 81, right? Like, how could she keep up with how rapidly things have changed? I showed her that comic that Colin Wright made that Elon Musk retweeted, you know, Mm -hmm. the one where it's like the character is staying in place, but the, what is it, the Overton window keeps shifting so that Mm -hmm. his his views are framed as progressively more to the right, or progressively might not be the right edge adverb there, but. So my mom, you know, I think she is kind of a news junkie who gets kind of hooked on the outrage. And she made a comment in a text exchange the other day about like how Florida is so crazy because of that don't say gay bill. Mm -hmm. And I asked if she'd read it. Now, I'm not somebody who does read bills a lot, but I think if I'm going to form a strong opinion about something, then I'm going to read it, right? And so that was one that I did read. And I think that Don't Say Gay is a horrible name for the bill. Um, Yeah, Yeah. I I read the bill, and it's really about protection of parental rights and child safeguarding and what kind of content is appropriate for young school-age children. And I understand where this bill is coming from because I understand the broader social context, and I share similar concerns to the people who are in support of this bill, This bill didn't just come out of nowhere. It's, and it's not based in homophobia. There are many gay people who supported the bill. It's really based in some concerning trends that have been happening in the schools that have eroded parental rights and child safeguarding. And I'm also thinking about, you know, some conversations I've had with people about their mental health and where there is this component of kind of outrage and despair and just perception of so much. Inequity and unfairness, and the world going to hell in a handbasket. Seeing how that impacts their mental health, and one kind of idea to try on. If you find yourself, you know, if if you're listening and and you feel like, yeah, I, I do that, right? I go to that place of rage or despair, and I recognize it's not good for me. One concept that I think can be helpful is to think about. What's a subject that you know a fair amount about, like that you would qualify to be like solidly intermediate, maybe expert level? And you can think about, Xavier, help me come up with the name. What's the name of that logical fallacy by which the people who know the least about something assume they know the most, but when you know more, you realize how much more you have to learn? Do you remember what that's called?
0: So let's see, it could be the availability heuristic, which is where we only are able to know, we, we, we claim that we know something when we only have what we can pull from our memory or it could be the, so the false consensus fallacy. I'm forgetting that I'm getting all of them mixed up. I feel like this
1: one, it's like named after somebody. It's like the something, but I forget. I'm sure a listener will recognize what we're talking about. Um, And at some point, I'm going to get to interview Gurwinder Pokal, who has some excellent tweet threads about this. I highly recommend following him, at Gurwinder, if you don't know. Pretty sure at Gurwinder anyway. Anyway, it's this cognitive distortion, this logical fallacy that we all fall prey to where when we really don't know a lot about a topic, we kind of assume we think we know more than we do. And when you actually go into depth in a subject, you know far more than the beginner, but you recognize that you're intermediate because you see how much more there is to learn, right? So what what I'm recommending is that think about something where you would qualify as solidly intermediate, where if there was somebody who through no fault of their own, that just wasn't their interest or expertise and they know a lot less and they were to say something kind of ignorant or overly simplistic, And how you would see so much more dimensionality to that topic and you would see the gaps in their thought process, but it would really require a long conversation or a lot of background to even catch them up to where you're at. Think about that, right? And then think about the fact that because there's only so many hours in a day, you don't have that level of expertise on every single subject. There's lots of other subjects where you are the beginner, and someone else is the expert or the intermediate level practitioner in that area of knowledge. Wouldn't you want somebody with more expertise than you to fill you in on something if it were really important to you? And if it were important enough, wouldn't you want to take the time to reach that level of knowledge before forming a strong opinion or taking any meaningful action? I think most people who have enough education or experience. kind of hear what I'm talking about here. You know, you can relate to whatever your special interest, your expertise, your profession is. And you're like, yeah, I, I know, right? Whether you're a programmer, a geologist, or you like collecting coins, you know, it doesn't really matter. You know what I'm talking about here. Where I think we get ourselves into trouble is that this kind of cheap junk food diet of information has us thinking that we have more knowledge than we do on a broad variety of subjects because it's easy to consume media that covers a lot of ground. And then we make the mistake of whatever that logical fallacy is, Mm -hmm. where we form strong opinions and we allow ourselves to react emotionally and spread not necessarily even misinformation, but partial information or distorted information based on actually being at a beginner level. And If you think about the impact this can have in its ripple effect of how it impacts your mental health, behavior, relationships, how it impacts other people's worldview, how it impacts how we vote and make decisions and what we think about people and who we include and exclude. Like, if you think about the ripple effect, maybe this is something that we should be more cautious about before letting these things run away with us. And for the sake of your own morale, For the sake of your own ability to feel like you live in a world where you can have a meaning and purpose and where there are good people and progress can happen. And you know, in order to not despair, I think it's really important if you find yourself getting riled up about something that you don't know a lot about, to really think, is this my hill to die on? Because if this is my hill to die on, if I really care about this issue then I owe it to this issue that I care about and myself and everyone whose lives I touch to reach that intermediate level, to really dig in and understand it better. And if I'm not willing to put in that time, it's fine, right? Because I get to decide what I'm going to use my precious time for. But if I'm not willing to put in the time to really do my research and consider this, you know, to, to read that bill, for example, then Why should I form strong opinions? And especially, why should I let this make me outraged or terrified or despairing when I could just give others a little bit of credit for the fact that there are people who have more expertise than I do? There are maybe reasons beyond my knowing that things are this way. And there are probably good people who know more about this than I do, who care about it, and who are working on it. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, I actually have a, a, a lot of thoughts about what you said. So I, I, I mostly agree. <clears throat> I think definitely in the the tenor of what you're saying, for sure. There's a few things here I think where this breaks down. So somewhat implicit, I would, uh, in what you're saying, is that there has to be a sort of nominal trust and cooperation that happens with individuals to do that. So, for example, if you know, you're an expert in X, Y, or Z, right? Like, you know, if you know Bowen or Minuchin way better than I do, right? These are family theorists that do, you know, great, great work or had, did great work. You know, I might look to you for that than someone that's not trained or hasn't done some, you know, practice in that way. Okay, does that mean that you know everything about it? No, and in fact, the people that are considered experts in something, if I think most people do and not all, but most, if they have some form of epistemic humility, they will say, look, you know, this is the data. This is what we know, but here's a lot of unknowns. Here's things that we're still trying to find and questions and things like that. All of the researchers and, and scientists that I talk to, they always say that they always people that are like, you know, it's like one of five in the world that study this one thing. And they'll be like, yeah, I don't know half of this stuff. Like, I I, I don't know. It's like, well, if you don't know. Yikes, you know, like how would I know because I, you know, I read a blog or I saw something passed on Facebook or whatever, right? Or Twitter. Yeah. So there's that piece of it. But the implicit in that is this trust and cooperation. And the problem is, is that people, I think for a variety of reasons, there has been an absolute erosion of trust in institutions. There's a potential rabbit trail here, which I'll look at and avoid. But let me just say this. Institutions, I think, are filled with people right? Past and present. Institutions themselves aren't, you know, a living organism. It's not a living thing, right? If there's nobody in there to run it or to to navigate within it, and then other people from the outside do it, it doesn't really exist. It's just a building. It's just a, you know, there's nothing to enforce it. And you can have terrible people in institutions, and you can have really awesome people, or as it usually is, a mixture of some. I think for many institutions, There are going to be people in there that aren't the best, even if they should be. There's going to be people there that get it wrong. But there's going to be most people in institutions that are trying their hardest, I think. They're trying. They work hard. They go to school. They get educated. They get their credentials, whatever it is. And they're representing an institution because it's bigger than just them as an individual. And the problem is is that most people, because I think this is connected, I, I could be wrong on this, but Because they can watch a 90-second clip of something on the internet, they have more ammunition to say, I don't trust this institution because I saw something that confirms my priors. So, you know, fuck that institution. I'm not going to sit here. I'm going to listen to what confirms what I want to believe, you know, kind of confirmation bias. Okay, that happens all the time. But over the past five to six years, we've seen that widespread. and that is. Very dangerous because there are certainly room to critique institutions and the people that are in them a hundred percent, and they should get that. But not where you question the very existence of what the institution is, because an institution is there with a collection of people to try and work for other people. It doesn't always happen that way, but I think trying to say you know we don't need a federal reserve because you know X Y and Z. It's like yeah, well we tried that many different points in our in our. Uh, nation's history and it was terrible it was absolutely terrible or we shouldn't have you know certain departments or whatever because we don't like x y and z it's like sure there's things i don't like about those departments either it doesn't mean the existence of an institution shouldn't be there right and so i think that's trying to have some kind of trust in people and then trust in people in certain positions and institutions is tough there's a second thing here You mentioned Colin's graphic. I know that was very hot for a couple of weeks. Uh, Interestingly, had a lot of legs. I'd seen it before, obviously. And I guess the funny thing about that was that, you know, I know Colin, obviously, you know, but so, but, but there's a thing about the continually changed on one side. it's like, yeah, the right is also not the same as it was 10, 15 years ago. I mean, it is, it is more overt and in some aspects, grotesque and some of the rhetoric. There is that on the left too, but it, it made it seem as if, you know, the left did all this change and here I am stuck and now I'm somehow, you know, on the right. It's like, no, no, no. The right also changed too. Nothing is ever static like that, especially political affiliations. And so whatever, that's fine. You, people can have a conversation about that. It was very strange on how people got very exercised about that mm. <laughs> graphic about the bill that you mentioned as an example. I don't have really strong opinions about it one way or the other necessarily, I guess my question about that whole thing, I mean, I admit it was as a, just as a kind of slang term, you know, don't say gay or whatever was very, it was a poor choice of, of, of a title. But my, I guess my question is, is unless you live in Florida, why do people give a shit? So I, I know in general, you can care about the topic or whatever, and people can do that, but there's something called liberal pluralism, Right. So liberal kind of not in a political sense, kind of a small L, right? If, you know, the United States is a a, a liberal federal republic, you know, democratic republic. So in terms of a small L liberal, that's the whole reason why you have states rights. If people want to choose, if constituents in Florida in a majority decide that they do or don't want this, that's their choice right? That's, that's, that's who they voted for. Those are the people that are pushing for that agenda. And, and these bills and okay, I don't live there. Why do I care in Maryland? What people in Florida do? I mean, I not really care because they're my fellow citizens. That's not my district. That's not my state Senator. That's not my, my governor. I, you know, if, if that were to happen in, in, in my state and I had strong opinions about something, then it's my job as a citizen and a constituent to go and voice my opinion. Why do people in Oregon care what people in Florida do? Why do people in, you know, North Dakota care what people in Texas do? I, I think, again, you can, in a nominal sense, kind of care or like, oh, is this like becoming a trend? It doesn't look like it. And in, in at least in, in mass, I don't think all 50 states are putting up their version of this bill. So let people in Florida handle what they handle, and I think that that's there's a type of again a liberal pluralism that says you get three a country a large country of 330 million people, 50 states, and you know all the territories. There's going to be some difference. That's limited government, right? That's states' rights. They're going to do what they want to do. That's their choice. And we have states that lean one way, states that lean another way, states that kind of over overall kind of in the middle. That's how it goes. So people that get really exercised about that and they literally have no say in it politically, I would question how much time someone should spend on that. Maybe they want to, and that's their choice. But you know, I think that there's, there's something to think about. The last thing I'll say here is anytime that I feel strongly about something one way or the other, I strongly like what this person says I strongly like this opinion or this post or this article or something like that. Generally, not always. I try to (laughs) try to say, why do I like this so much? And the opposite, if somebody says something or makes a post or there's an article or whatever, and I strongly have a strong inversion, I strongly dislike it. I say, okay, why, why do I have that in both ways? Now, Sometimes I still will have those feelings or sometimes I'll, you know, kind of, you know, adjust it or change it. But you, I think because we have so much information coming so fast and we have all of our priors and biases and all these things, we have to say, well, wait a minute, let me just take 10 seconds to check this. Why do I hate this bill that has nothing to do with me? Well, it's because of this, this, and this. Okay, fine. Maybe that's what it is. Why do I care what this person posted or whatever? Okay. You know, there's all these things. And I feel if people did more of that, maybe it would say, Hmm, you know what? This clip I'm looking at is from one person's camera. I'm not seeing the perspective from over here and over here and over here. And wow, that whole hook is of this actually makes it look a little different and maybe there's going to be more information that comes out and I'd have to rechange my position. So maybe I shouldn't go so hard, so quick, maybe just make a, you know, tentative kind of opinion on it I think if people did more of that that may be you know more helpful and advantageous to to how we interact with people in society and online but so yeah those are my responses I know I I said a lot there so
1: you're so moderate and reasonable in your thought process (laughs) and in in doing that you're kind of making a counterpoint to a lot of people's idealism but I, I almost hear you representing your own form of idealism about how moderate and reasonable we could be you know when i when i think about
0: we could we could be i don't think we should all be moderates let me just say that Mm. some people think that i don't think that i think we do need people that are very passionate and activist and strong i do think we need that as well let
1: me push back on you a little bit though because i I do think i i don't know if you were being rhetorical or sincere when you said why care about florida you know i think Mm. that I agree with you to some extent that people should have a right to engage in local governance according mm-hmm. to the needs that they see in their community. And I think a lot of the left-right and divide, the left-right divide in this country wouldn't be nearly so big a deal if each side understood that some of what makes for the differences between left and right values has to do with regional factors. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the mm-hmm. the amount of infrastructure and governance that the left wants makes sense in cities. It doesn't mm-hmm. make as much sense in rural areas where, you know, Republican values have have more of a fit financially, right? I mean, I mean there's a there's a lot that could be said about just more respect for people's rights to kind of self-organize and manage their local governance. But and, and so there are a lot of issues that I personally won't have a strong opinion about because it doesn't affect my area directly or because it's not my area of expertise. And You know, Mm -hmm. I do think that my own form of being moderate and reasonable is, well, if I haven't studied something in great depth, then I'm not necessarily going to trust whatever the news tells me I should feel outraged about, because there's probably a lot more to it. The truth is more subtle and complex than that. And do I really want to take the time to do my research? Is this my hill to die on? But, you know, you picked a very controversial topic, one that touches on one of my own personal hills that I will die on and something, you know, the one thing that I did research, because, I think whatever side you're on, it's hard not to have strong feelings about the Florida bill, right? So if you're on the side that views the LGBTQ plus as a unified community, which that that starts to break down if you look into it, like I have, you know, but if you're in the side that kind of still views quote unquote trans rights as no different from gay rights and Views, you know, whatever quote unquote trans people are asking for as human rights. And, you know, if you have that set of views, if you're on the left with regard to those issues, then the Florida bill is very upsetting to you because it comes across as homophobic and it feeds into your moral outrage over homophobia. And that's just in a nutshell. I'm not going to get into detail. You know, on the other hand, if you have kind of seen what I've seen because I would have felt that way a few years ago, you know, but it's after years of seeing what I've seen and and doing my research and deciding that this is something that really matters to me, you know, learning from parents and teachers about some of the things that are happening in the schools in terms of what kids are being taught about sex and gender and how that violates parental rights and child safeguarding. It's like then you're going to really care about this issue for the opposite reasons because you're talking about children's safety here and you know protecting kids from being indoctrinated in, in schools. So it makes a lot of sense to me that this is an issue that, sure, it could be happening on the opposite side of the country. I mean, I'm in Oregon. You can't get much further away from Florida than Oregon. I mean, I could go one state to the north and that's as far away as you can get in this country. But I actually do care about what's going on in F- because I think what happens in one state is significant to people about what could happen in their states you know and i'm even paying attention to what's happening in canada in great britain with regard to you know how the field of psychotherapy is governed and the quote unquote conversion therapy bans which i have a lot to say on and you know hopefully by the time this episode gets released i will have released some other episodes on that topic so i think whatever side of the political divide someone falls on with that it's like well, if this is happening in this state or this country, then it could happen in mine next. And you know, if if you're of the view again that this is a gay rights issue, then it's like the idea of protecting sexual minority children, right? And if you're on the other side, then it's a matter of protecting children from ideology indoctrination and and medical harm. And I think it's hard to put borders around that. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar, and it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com, that's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, and use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you.
0: again, when we feel passionate about something, I think the first question is why we have to ask ourselves, why do we feel passionate about this? You know, why do I personally feel passionate about it? You can think you're right or wrong about whatever, whatever the position is. That's fine. But personally, why do I feel passionate about this? Right. And, and then I think secondly is, you know, have folks taken the time to really hear the other quote unquote, the other side And listen and walk a mile in their shoes and and try to have some objectivity. You could still have strong positions that, you know, one way or the other, but I, I guess the thing that always worries me, and this is hard for a lot of social issues is we can't forget that regardless of the rhetoric and the debates and stuff like that, at the end of the day, all of the people involved are people and they are. Uh, kids and there's parents and you know not everyone's going to be happy together they're not going to have the same opinions but i i do i think where i think if we're putting ideas and rhetoric over people that can be problematic on either side and that always makes me sad when that happens and i feel like sometimes People can use rhetoric or ideas in place of people, even if they claim they aren't. They, that is maybe sometimes what has ended up happening. And I think it has to say, whoa, this is tough. But, and I can see that I'm indirectly or directly hurting other people. And then the reverse, the, you know, that can also happen on the reverse side. And I think it's a complicated issue, that in particular. I just hope people don't forsake or or forget that there are real people on either side of things and that there's real people's thoughts and feelings and their livelihoods and who they are i think that's true of any issue you know i think that's what makes it really tough is is that so but i i still i still stand by my my general idea of i'm going to be most worried and i'm not saying that you can't be but i'm most worried about things that go on in my state or, or my region or something than stuff in kansas you may See it differently, but it's
1: hard to get around our human propensity for tribalism.
0: Yeah, it's tough. I think we can, uh, but it's a so it's, it's a war of attrition. <laughs> it's a war of how much are we not allowing it to just kind of sink into that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's tough. I, I I think it is really tough. And I, I guess maybe the other thing is, this is the hard thing I think about all the time. Again, it's hard. I don't, I don't have a good answer for it, but I don't want to be so strong about something because I'm always, I can always change my mind. But also I want to be open enough where I could talk to many different types of people and I don't want to push other people away from having good conversations that will happen inevitably. But I, I wish it wouldn't, you know, we learn best from people that are most different from us, I think, And you know, it's like, okay, how are we reaching folks that maybe can say, Hmm, I never thought of it that way. Okay. Or people are just gonna completely just, you know, group us into one category and say, oh, I'm gonna listen to that person. It's hard. And there, like
1: you say, is a degree of trust that's required to be able to assume enough fundamental goodness to be able to have that conversation and keep that thread open rather Mm -hmm. than to take these, I wanna say tribalist heuristics, these rapid mental shortcuts that we make that We take little cues to decide, is this an us or a them? Are they on my side? Are they on the side of the bad guys? And any little cue, a word, a gesture, a symbol can quickly signal to our brains that oh, they're from the warring tribe, right? And then I don't owe them any dignity. I can't indulge them in our common humanity to any degree. It's my moral duty. And my service to the tribe to oust them and to assume that anything they're gonna say is wrong. And the more content there is on the internet, or the more substance there is to any social interaction where trust hasn't trust isn't the foundation, the more opportunities there are for you to inadvertently signal to someone that you're not on their team.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And so, this brings me to the subject of paranoia that I was wanting to talk about with you right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. because I think we have opportunities at every corner to become more paranoid of each other and erode that trust further. I recently recorded an episode and listeners remember that I record episodes sometimes months before they're released and that the order in which I record them is not necessarily the order in which they're released. So. Don't infer anything about who this person was. But uh, I recently recorded an episode with someone, I will say, who's very mature psychologically and a deep thinker, as I would say is true for most of my guests. A few weeks prior to our interview, I was just messing around with some settings on my calendar where I was taking all my podcast interviews and switching which of my Google calendars they were showing up on. Mm-hmm. Just like mm-hmm. a little behind-the-scenes admin tweak, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that when I did this that some of my upcoming podcast appointment recording partners were going to receive emails saying that their appointment with me was canceled, which it wasn't. It was just switching calendars, right? Mm, So then mm -hmm, I had to clear mm -hmm. things up because a couple of people got back to me like, did you cancel our appointment? Mm -hmm. And this one person who was confused by it, it took a little back and forth to sort it out. And we finally met. We had our recording. And... They said to me at the beginning of the interview, you know, I'm I'm glad that it was just that because I was feeling paranoid, you know, I I got the notification that our interview was canceled right after someone left a negative book review for my mm. book on Amazon. And I was like so grateful that this person had told me that because it gave me the opportunity to clear it up and say no, that's not it at all. I Didn't see your negative book review on Amazon, but if I had, I would have taken it with a huge grain of salt. I mean, people say nasty things about me on the internet. People say nasty things about each other on the internet. And if you're saying anything interesting, it's going to be controversial. So I would expect that sort of thing, you know, unless there's something really egregious, in which case I'd want to investigate it myself before jumping to any conclusions. I think this person's maturity was reflected in the fact that they were self aware enough and vulnerable and communicative enough to say it to me, Uh not that anyone should be immature enough that they would never think or feel that way for an instance because we're human, we're vulnerable, right? And our minds fill in the gaps in the absence of information. So yeah, when someone cancels on you or ghosts you or anytime there's an absence of information as to what's going on in a relationship that's not on super solid ground already and depending on your attachment style it might need more and more solid ground right or you know even if you have a perfectly polite interaction but you don't know that this person isn't just you know being a people pleaser or mm-hmm. in psychology terms that that it's not a reaction formation right reaction formation is when we don't like someone so we double down on acting like we do we we can be so unsettled and i was really grateful for the opportunity to clear up this communication i was grateful that They had the wisdom to have that conversation with me, but it got me thinking about all the times that those conversations could be happening, maybe I would say should be happening, but aren't happening. And I think about Mm -hmm. all these bits and pieces and fragments of social interactions that I've been a part of, that my friends have been a part of, that I've witnessed or I know something about where it's like so-and-so's not getting back to so-and-so and this other person, it, you know, had this interaction with this person. And I think these two are tighter than these two. And, you know, you're trying to fill in the gaps of like, mm-hmm. yeah. are they just busy or have I been blacklisted? You know, okay, I had this one conversation with so-and-so where I confided this in them. Would they have distorted that and framed it more negatively and told someone else? And there's just so much you don't know. And I have those things myself, right? I have those things where I'm like, oh, this one person's not getting back to me. And they're friends with so and so. And so and so didn't get back to me. And is it because so and so did this? Like, you know, you, and it's like, well, how, could, what's the most negative light they could have possibly framed what I did in, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm somebody who, you know, I, I'm a therapist, I am pretty psychologically self aware, pretty resilient. I know not to take these things too personally or seriously or jump to conclusions, but I deal with that as much as any human being. And the friends who feel close enough to confide in me tell me their bits and pieces of worrying and wondering about each other and, and what things mean. And so if I think about, you know, someone who's maybe less self-aware or has more kind of unresolved trauma or attachment wounds, you know, someone who doesn't have as much of filter or skepticism about their own tendency towards reactivity, someone who's a little more easily hooked into the reactivity, then it's exponentially greater the potential for assuming the worst in these cases, right? And then maybe even preemptively, hypervigilantly or reactively doubling down on what we do when we're not sure where we stand with someone, right? So then that could look like Uh, going on the offense. It could look like deliberately or even unconsciously spreading rumors or misinformation about someone in kind of a a preemptive attempt to secure your own reputation because you have this suspicion and you're just running with it that these other people are speaking ill of you, right? So then you're like, okay, well, I got to win this social competition. So I'm going to say this about so and so because i'm sure they're saying that about me and you know but what if you're wrong right <laughs> so i just i've just been thinking about how these things just spiral out of control and it can be so anxiety provoking and i i think i think it's best overall to find a way to live with that anxiety than to act on some of the things that that anxiety could compel us to do, to really jump to those conclusions and run with them or behave as if the conclusions we could jump to are true. Mm. I think online makes it a lot more possible for these things to fester because we don't have those face-to-face connections. We don't get to look into someone else's eyes and feel their body language. And we don't have the kind of depth of connection that real life experiences together make for that, that make robust relationships.
0: Yeah. And I, I I agree. I think, you know, I mean, it's obviously the, uh, you know, fundamental attribution error, right? So for when we're thinking about others, we're going to usually think more about their things happen because of their dispositional qualities, things about them as opposed to situational things. So a classic example right the person that cuts you off in traffic and you're like oh this person's a fucking asshole and like it's something about them right because they had no consideration and maybe in the passenger seat you know they're you know uh wife's you know you know in labor you know ready to deliver right now and they're rushing to the hospital and they had to get there but we don't think about it that way initially in the moment you know and i think we have a pretty strong negative trait bias i mean we're usually you know Prone to think about things negatively first, usually as a evolutionary protective factor about the paranoia, though, is the thing that I try to do is I try to, I'm not always good at it, but always from scratch, you know, always, always blank slate Mm. from zero with each person I meet. That doesn't mean that I obviously don't make many observations. I don't kind of store things in my filing cabinet in my head, but I try to just see the person. And say, okay, here's what they're giving me. You know, they're saying this or doing this, but there might be reasons for that. And there usually are. Do I have to know them and find them all out? Probably not. But how do I see the humanity of this person? And even how do you start from zero again of sorts with each interaction you have with them? Because mm. everybody has you know, a shitty day or, you know, they're going Mm. through stuff and you don't know what they're holding on and what suffering they're holding. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, but that's hard for people to do. So they, they may think, you know, they'll pull their stuff or, oh, I had something similar in this bad experience and yikes, you know? And so, you know, I think it's always trying to, it's easy to do that with easier. I should say to do that with people. Sometimes we're closer to, we kind of know. Oh no, no, they're going through a hard time or that wasn't mm-hmm. intentional. There they may, you know, you know. Mm-hmm. And a little bit easier to do that maybe than with with people that we don't know. But I think we should whether it's easier or harder, we should probably probably try to do that, you know, with you know, with everybody. And I've had I've had occasions where I'll know somebody and maybe they say something that's a little a little sharp or something publicly or online and and I'll usually, you know, try to kindly say, "Hey, you know, I'll send them a message or whatever and say, Hey, you know, it's, it's, I know it's online stuff, but, uh, that kind of read weird. Am I just seeing this wrong? Like, what did you mean by that? Mm. And usually it's, Oh no, no, no. I just, you know, whatever, whatever. And it was this, Oh, okay. I I thought it might be that I couldn't be too sure. I just wanted to check. Oh no, no, no. Sometimes it will be, you know, a little bit more. Well, I was thinking that you meant this like, no, not at all. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. My bad. I'm sorry. Or whatever. And You know, I think if, but if you come out saying, Hey, why did you say that about me? Why did you do that about me? Or why did you cancel this or that or whatever? And, you know, that's not to say that there aren't moments where that happens. Sometimes how we think about things in a negative way, sometimes there is some truth to that. You know, maybe they did ghost you, but I would say more often than not, it's not just that. And it's not, you know, and and many times it isn't that, uh, it, it might be other things. and so. I think if also if people, if, if people see other people as approachable, right? So, you know, if, if you, you know, sent me an email or sent me a message and said, Hey, what did you mean by this? Cause you know, my, my kind of gut was saying, oh, man, what, you know, why did he say that? That's just terrible. And then I would uh, give you a, probably a long-winded answer about what my reasoning was and why I said it and what I meant and this and that. Oh, okay. I, you know, I still disagree with you, but at least I understand or something. Okay. But some people, I think, can feel that the other person might not be approachable. And so then that kind of feeds into that too. And maybe some people aren't. I think we can kind of check that and say, hey, I've had some weird experiences in other people and I don't want to put that on you. Can I bring this up or something? Yeah, sure. Or "Uh, I don't know what you're trying to do here. Or some people can have their own paranoia. So I think sometimes if we're unsure, we can ask. But I definitely think it's something that people you know struggle with you know at times myself included and i just have to say well the, old, the worst thing could be is they just don't like me and mm. okay well yeah i'm not not going to be a winner for everybody but uh it's probably x y and z reasons and it usually is one of the other x mm. y and z reasons
1: i hope you've been enjoying this episode of you must be some kind of therapist podcast if you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop, where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. It's usually not as bad as we think.
0: Usually not. I like this idea
1: of starting from zero in each interaction, offering the benefit of the doubt. And you bring up the fundamental attribution error, which just to restate, because I think this is such an important point, is that this is one of many common logical fallacies or cognitive distortions that we're all kind of prone to as human beings, which is that when we think about our own behavior, we see it within the context of you know, how we were feeling, what was going on, what was the situation, what were the social dynamics? That's why I acted that way. And that's how we want to be seen. And we'd like to be able to assume that we're seen, right? But when we think about each other's behavior, we don't see it in context as easily. And we tend to assume that it's a reflection of their character. Mm -hmm. And I think this fundamental attribution error does contribute to some of my own paranoia, right? Because I'm able to see that, well, I know that I interacted that way because I was under these certain pressures or because of this other component to the social dynamic, but I don't expect that other people are going to right. give me the benefit of the doubt and think, oh, well, did you know what Stephanie was going through at the time when that happened? You know, I I, I don't trust other people to do that. Is why I think there might be something to check out. And I just want to, you know, give you an opportunity to clear this up. I don't want to jump to conclusions. I think that's really gracious and you know there's also a little bit of the benjamin franklin effect in there this this um mm-hmm. do you know that the benjamin franklin effect mm-hmm. right so for, explain, for those who aren't familiar so, yeah. the idea in a nutshell is that actually let me back up and explain the greater context mm-hmm. as humans we try to minimize cognitive dissonance we we don't really like to tolerate too much holding conflicting beliefs and opinions and behaviors at the same time so We have all kinds of tricks that occur unconsciously to minimize that, right? So we like to think that our behavior makes sense in lights of our thoughts, feelings, and values, right? So if I am kind to someone, then, you know, these mechanisms in my brain get to work to justify that I'm kind to this person for a reason. I must like them or, you know, feel generously motivated towards them. Similarly, if I'm rude to someone, rather than facing my own shame of like, that was really inappropriate, that was me just taking out my mood on them, it, you know, there's a mental habit and this can happen to any of us that, well, I they deserved it, right? And then we look for evidence why they deserved it. So mm-hmm. to minimize that cognitive dissonance because I don't wanna face that maybe I was just being a, a shitty human being and that's not the kind of person I wanna be, right? So if we're kind to someone, we assume that we like that person we also like to think of ourselves as good people as generous kind helpful smart knowledgeable right so turns out that asking someone for a small manageable favor that's not too intrusive that's within their capacity to give to us and without being you know sneaky or weird or manipulative about it actually makes them like us more right in in many cases now, of, of course, it's not always going to work. But you mm-hmm. know, Ben Franklin actually kind of curried favor early in his political career with people who are more advanced by, for example, asking if he could borrow a book that he knew that they had in their library. Well, I think there's a little bit of a Benjamin Franklin effect in kind of asking someone the favor of you know helping us resolve our paranoia or fill in the the blank, right? Mm-hmm. When when you can kind of come with that humility and that like, hey, would you do me a favor and just like help me get a little more comfortable in this social situation rather than projecting and assuming that they have some kind of power over us or some kind of judgment toward us. It can it can set things on a good track. Doesn't mean it's always gonna work.
0: Yes, I would agree. I think um, <clears throat> one thing kind of loosely connected with that is, you know, I, th- I think it's trying to, Obviously, as humans, we're terribly flawed. We're, you know, we have so many, we can do the worst possible things to each other and we can do the best possible things to each other. I try to always, you know, try to see and think about the best in other people, at least initially, and they may have some pretty ugly parts to them. But, you know, if, you know, it's what you do with that, whether you associate with them, whether you don't or whatever. But, you know, the one thing that really bothers me is, you know, kind of guilt by association. I think that's really, really harmful. I think sometimes it can be, it's complicated. I think in general, in personal, I I think if you're a public intellectual or a public figure, that gets a little bit, the rules on that probably start to kind of bend and pull a little bit because there's, I think the more influence you have, the more responsibility you have. And so you have to consider that and say, okay, you know, if I have a podcast that reaches, you know, thousands and millions of people that's much different than a couple hundred and I need to be mindful of that obviously I'm not responsible for people's actions but I don't want to even inadvertently be be responsible and as long as I'm putting forth good effort to try and say hey listen here and here and here and and I'm not sure about this and, and I'm not saying this and you know the responsibility is on you with the person with influence to have exercise more responsibility I think most people just don't do that anymore. It's the opposite actually. But all that said, I think if you want to promote a society of forgiveness, when people make mistakes or they say wrong things or, or they do the wrong thing again, there's a spectrum on that. <laughs> there are some things that are really, you know, when you start getting to felony territory and you start getting into <laughs> really strong, serious legal territory, I mean, that's a little bit different. You can forgive them personally, but they maybe should be adjudicated, but You know, I think kind of these mild blunders, these, you know, things that happen. And I think sometimes it's the guilt by association. I know a lot of people I'm friendly and friends with a lot of people that I strongly disagree with, but my relationship with them doesn't really change. And it bothers me that, you know, people sometimes ask me, well, why aren't you publicly shitting on them for their ideas? It's like, that's for me to do personally. I'm not going to sit here again. And score points with you, and if that means you don't want to hang out with me or talk to me or whatever, that's fine. Uh, that's your choice. I do think it has happened a few times, not not often, but I have reached out to some people I know, and I've said, "Hey, you know, can I share something first? And usually they say yes. You know, I've seen some of your public presence here and you know obviously that's your decision your choice but I think this is really polarizing I don't know how helpful this is have you considered that usually they hear it well and maybe they do or don't do it but that doesn't mean that I'm less friends with them I I think that there are certain decisions you might have to make sometimes but I think it's important to being friends doesn't mean that you have to always be beating them up because you disagree that's silly but I do think you have to be mindful of (laughs) hey as a friend you should probably say listen, you know, maybe this is okay, or maybe this is right or whatever, but maybe not in this context, or maybe not this much, or maybe not because it's just kind of backfiring, but everyone's going to do ultimately what they want to do. But I really don't like where people will say like, you know, well, you're friends with that person. So I can't be friends with you. It's like, that's silly. That's dumb. You know, and, and I think we need to try and, and push each other and challenge each other and support each other and help each other. And being able to forgive people, for people to own it, where they can feel that they're the you know the person, even that they disagree with you, is receptive to to being able to say things is important. And I think that's something that's missing mostly in our society, which makes me sad. And I wish there was a way we could get better at it, but we, we got to keep trying one day at a time. But I mean, I, I, that is something that I also you know I kind of feel strong about because it's the person at the end of the day, and it's like you know, let's try and see that and. Maybe, yeah, maybe they need to take a break or maybe they need to, you know, whatever for a while. Okay. But, you know, there's still a person.
1: I'll share one thought on that before we close, which is, sure. of course, I'm just meeting you for the first time, but I would imagine that for people who are your close friends, that part of being a close friend would be knowing your character and knowing that you are the sort of person who doesn't jump to conclusions, doesn't polarize, doesn't negatively overgeneralize a person's entire character because of a disagreement on something, doesn't subscribe to the guilt by association, you're free to make your own decisions. I mean, those are all character right. traits that I'm getting from you just in an hour and a half of talking. And I would think that if someone's a friend of yours, that, that would they would know that and they would appreciate mm-hmm. and respect that about you and not be- shocked and abhorred when you violate <laughs> their idea of what it is to be loyal to your value system. So we do need to wrap up, but it's been a pleasure. Sure. Thank you Course, so much yeah, for same. exploring yes, all pleasure. of this with me. Tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast and where they can find you.
0: Yeah, well, thanks, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. I, again, I can, you know, talk for hours and hours with you. You're you're, you're very lovely to talk to and it's, it's it's been a stimulating conversation, so I appreciate you for asking me to come on. You can find my podcast, Converging Dialogues, everywhere. Uh, Google, Spotify, Apple, YouTube. Pretty much, you just Google it, you'll find it. You can find uh, me. Uh, mostly, I, I don't have a website. I haven't really had a need for one, but maybe at some point in the future. Uh, mostly on Twitter, my first and last name, Xavier Bania 87. It's, that's uh, all together. I'm usually pretty receptive. If you want to message me or reach out, check out the the podcast. A lot of wonderful guests that I've had, lots of different types of conversations, social science, uh, physical sciences, some stuff from history, a lot of different stuff on there, trying to talk with people with different ideas. And uh, yeah.
1: Thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure.
0: Of course. Thank you.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Nguyen, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, Get outside and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.